So, John's Gospel, Chapter 5, Audience of One, is the title of our message. Um, do you think Jesus ever struggled with insecurity? No. Do you think Jesus ever struggled with what people thought of him? No. Do you think Jesus ever struggled with so many of the things we struggled with? Um, not sure if he was doing the right thing. Well, I look at the ways I struggle and generally we struggle as people. And a lot of, I think, our struggles tend to be um, uncertainty about what we should be doing, how we should be doing it. Um, what people think, uh, whether it's, you know, the approval of people or uh, those types of things, trying to please people and, and be, uh, you know, in the good graces of people, getting the, either the, I don't know if it's applause of men, but definitely approval. And so I think definitely in those aspects, Jesus hasn't struggled and didn't struggle in those things. That's what I mean, I guess. Um, part of Jesus' secret, I think the key to how he lived life on earth is going to be seen in this chapter. And I think we would do very well to learn and not just you know, study Jesus and how he did what he did, but apply it. And, and actually live it out, because I think we do struggle oftentimes in life with wondering if we're doing the right things, if we're in the right place, if we're moving in the right direction, all of that stuff. And I think a lot of that, you know, baggage that we carry, it comes from a lot of sources that Jesus seems so singularly focused our objective in life is not to um, be carefree and have no problems in, in this life or world, right? We, can we avoid problems or tribulations or suffering? We can't, right? Because we, we're guaranteed it in the scriptures. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good courage, I've overcome the world. All who set out to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. And so if you look at Jesus who was singularly focused in his life and the things that we struggle with and he didn't struggle with those things, I think again this chapter will show us um, why. By way of introduction in John's Gospel chapter 4, we finished it last week, but we had at the beginning of the chapter the woman at the well that Jesus had to meet in Samaria, right? And you had that whole thing take place. The chapter ended with a nobleman who wanted Jesus to heal his son who was sick. Was it his son or his daughter? Son? And Jesus said, unless you people see a sign, you won't believe. And Jesus rebuked him. He rebuked his lack of belief where he had to see a miracle first and then believe. 
And a miracle can be used to corroborate our faith, to authentic, authenticate Jesus and what he's doing, but we should believe by faith with or without the miracle. And that's, he's using the contrast of the Samaritans who believed at the woman's word, and then Jesus stayed with them two extra days, and then now they said, we believe now ourselves, not because of the word you said, but because of his word. And they believed without a sign. They believed at his word. Jesus spoke it and they believed it. And that's faith, right? That's trusting God and taking him at his word. And that's what we're called to do. We're not going to see physical Jesus until we go home to be with God in heaven, right? So we have to walk by faith. We have to trust what God is saying. And the proof of that is walking in it. It's living it out. We can give lip service. We can know a lot of Bible, but unless we're actually living out what Jesus has said to us in his word, we're not walking by faith. We're trusting in something else. And so again, I think this chapter enlightens us as to how Jesus uh, walked this earth. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would speak to us through it. Thank you so much for the example that you set for us. Bless our time as we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're going to see a healing take place. And we're just going to look at this from a kind of a traditional sense. There's all kinds of ways I guess we can look at this. After this, verse 1 says in John's Gospel, chapter 5, after this, after this, you know, nobleman comes to Jesus and he heals his son and tells him to go home and he was healed that same hour. After this, there was a feast of the Jews uh, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The feast could be the Passover. It could be the day of Pentecost or there was one more where all of them had to show up. Uh, I don't know if that's tabernacles or booths, but it's, it's going to be one of those great feasts where there's a crowd, there, there's a group gathered. John Corson leans towards it being uh, Pentecost because he's looking at a religious setting. And we're going to see the Jews, specifically the, the leaders within Judaism, come to Jesus and be very religious. And this will be the first time that we're seeing that they want to kill Jesus. He's just starting. He's just getting, getting started in ministry, right? He did the first miracle, the turning the water into wine, it said in John chapter 2. And then he does the second miracle, healing that noble son. That would be the second sign at the end of chapter 4, he said. And so Jesus is just getting started. If this is the Passover, that's how we're able to determine three and a half years because he would take it up to, um, there'd be other, three other Passovers mentioned. So that's how we know Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years. <clears throat> so now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, house of mercy is Bethesda having five porches. Again, John Corson's commentary would point out that five is the number of the Pentateuch, first five books of Moses, looking to the law, referring to the law. Um, but in, in numerology, in, in Bible numerology, five is actually the number of mercy or grace. And of course, he's at a pool, which is in Bethesda. What is Bethesda? House of mercy. And so this is a merciful act that Jesus is going to uh, do here. In these... Pools, verse 3, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. If you ever want to identify with anybody in the Bible, you look for the lowest, biggest loser 
and that's who you identify with. So we are sick, we are blind, we are lame, we are paralyzed, and we need help. And so waiting for the moving of the water, we'll get into that in a little bit. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then the, whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So pool in the Greek is kolumbithra, a deep pool from underneath that comes bubbling. So I don't know if you've ever been to Marietta, the hot springs, you got this water that bubbles from under and there's this natural thing. So in this case, it would kind of happen on occasion. The belief at that time was, hey, an angel's sticking his finger in the water when it bubbles and he stirs it. The, the point is, you know, the, the people believe that it was an angel doing it and they believe that whoever got in first would be healed. And so that through that belief, they're unleashing faith through that point of contact. And so <clears throat> we see that throughout the scriptures. We see that through the releasing of faith, things happen, whether it's your faith or the faith of somebody else, things happen. And we don't know how to truly um, define that. You see people take it to an extreme where they begin to command of God and demand of God and they become the God of God and through their words, they believe that their words have such power that they can tell God what he is to do and they call that faith. And so there's a, there's a fine line there. There's a fine line in walking by faith and confessing things in faith, professing your faith and believing God for impossible things and difficult things and there's, there's a balance of the sovereignty of God as well. And so in James chapter 5, we are told that if you are sick, you come to the elders of the church and with oil and being anointed and the laying on of hands, uh, you can be healed. The, the fervent righteous prayer or the something fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Something like that, right? And so the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man of Ilsman. Thank you, Lee. So, again, I don't claim to uh, have that all figured out. Faith is definitely this difficult thing to um, grapple with. I know I'm called to walk by faith and not by sight, but I am very uncomfortable when I hear the faith teachers teaching and it just screams heresy in my heart. My discerning alarm just goes off. And God forbid we think that we can command the creator of the universe to act on our behalf outside of his will as if we and our words have some power that they don't. And so again, uh, you know, I don't, if you can figure it out and explain it to me, I'll go ahead and hear you one day. We can go to lunch and you can explain it all to me. Any comments on that? Just... <clears throat> it's not appreciated, no, that type of teaching, no, because it's, yeah, what do, you, what, what do you say to the person that believes hard enough but is still, like, sick? Right. What do they do? So it's not, it's not right, it just sets people up, it's a, a wrong mindset mm -hmm. and heart. Or, or they really want their baby to be healed and their baby ends up dying and it's their fault because they didn't have enough faith. I mean... Those are the things I think that I've seen be very destructive. And that, that's hurt. that hurts. That's hard. Now, you, get, you, you not only lost your, your child, 
But now you have to live with the guilt that it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. And so I don't, I don't think that's appropriate. All right, so we have this <clears throat> idea. It's not saying that an angel does it. That's the story that is being communicated. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Out of all the people that, you know, catches Jesus' eyes, it's this one guy, a certain man. And I find it interesting that 38 years, the only other time in the Bible that it's used is in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14. It's the only reference to 38 years. Anybody know the other reference? Deuteronomy 2, 14, 38 years. The, the nation of Israel would wander in the wilderness for 38 years. Kadesh, 40, they round it up to 40, and they say 40 years. But in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, it says exactly 38 years. Okay? So, again, uh, kind of pointing to the law, right? Pointing to uh, the, the, the wilderness wanderings, and I think we wander a lot. We're going to see that in the context, it is believed that this man's sin caused the, his sickness. Because Jesus would tell him, go and sin no more, lest something worse comes upon you. And so, uh, you know, the context is going to let us know that his sin contributed to this condition. And so, um, 38 years. I mean, we go through a lot of heartache and turmoil, I think oftentimes, trying to get lessons that God would so much sooner allow us to get. But uh, some of us are hard-headed, some of us are stubborn. Some of us insist that we know better and that we can figure it out. And like a little boy or girl telling their parents, no, I got it. I can do it. No, you can't. Like, let me help you. Nah, I don't need help. I think we tend to kind of do that at times too. And so this man is in this condition and Jesus zeroes in on him. There are a lot of people at this pool, right? There are a lot of people here gathered. And Jesus zeroes in on one person, this individual that had a condition for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Is everybody ready to be made well? No, right? Are we always ready to have the answer and move in obedience in the direction that God is leading us? No, wish we were. I wish, you know, we would have those smaller time gaps in between pain and solution, difficulty, struggle, and answer. But no, we're, we're not always ready. And God oftentimes needs to prepare us for what he has prepared for us. He, he needs to get us ready for the answers that we can receive because, I don't know, we just, we need that. <laughs> we need time. And so he asked the question, do you want to be made well? This man answers like we have a tendency to answer. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. This is a powerful verse for me as I was studying and it just kept striking me. First of all, it's like without a person, I'm not going to be able to get help. Huh. You need a person. You're going to rely upon a person. You're going to wait on a person to be able to get the help you need, as opposed to what? Looking to God? 
(laughs) So you need a man to put you in? God can't help you? So he has no man to put him into the pool. Now, he can't do it because every time he tries, he's not the first one. So Jesus doesn't pick the guy at the edge of the pool. I don't know. I just see it as a competition. And Jesus picks the guy that's not even competing. But he's there. He has hope. Like, it's not like he's not there. He does want to be made well. He went to the pool. And he's waiting for the stirring. But every time he tries, he doesn't make it. And so he's been beat up. He's been 38 years. That's a long trial. That's... That's a lifelong trial, is it not? He's not 38 years old. He's older than 38. But he's been in this condition for 38 years. So whenever he contracted this thing, it's 30 years ago, 38 years ago. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. You know, maybe it's not for me. Maybe it's for somebody else. Maybe this isn't my thing. Somebody else always gets it. I've watched it time and time again. It doesn't tell us how long he's been coming to the pool, but it's probably been coming more than just this one time because he tells us every time I try. Maybe it's not 38 years, but it's probably been a pretty long time, and it's always for somebody else. Somebody else always gets the break. Somebody else always gets the help, but it's not for me. Isn't that just our condition at times where we look around and nobody's willing to help us, and here we are all alone, and... Man, somebody else, you see somebody else, you know, get something, and you're like, oh, maybe it's not my turn yet, and, and maybe it will be one day. But he hasn't given up hope, but he's hopeless. Isn't that interesting? He hasn't given up hope because he's there, but he is genuinely hopeless, is he not? The sick man, verse 7, answered him, sir. Oh, I said that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight. Jesus answered... Where are we at? Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed. These are three commands and walk. Three commands. Rise. On my word, obey my command. Rise. And I don't know if he felt something. I don't know if he, he sensed something. I would imagine being in a condition where you're on a mat, a bed, you've probably tried to rise, right? You've probably tried to do stuff. And at Jesus' command, he's able to do it. So when God commands you, when God commands me, his commandments are his enablement. They're, they're going to empower. God will never command you to do something he will not empower you to do. And that's a, a, a very dynamic concept in the scriptures. At his command, he will give us the ability to obey the command. He doesn't do it to beat us up. He doesn't do it to laugh at us. He doesn't do it to mock us. He doesn't do it to trick us, but at his command. And so discern that still small voice of God in your life. And when he commands something of you, know that he will empower you to do it. At his command, rise. Take up your bed. Make no provision to be able to be in this condition again. Take it up. Carry it. Don't, don't, don't leave it like, oh, I, in case this doesn't work, I'm going to come back. One of the commentators I was reading talked about, you know, the people that would go into this pool. He said, most likely, some of those people were healed for a season, for a moment in time. This is 
he's going to be healed forever until he you know, dies of something. But it's not going to be this, this sickness. And then walk. Move forward. Move forward in the things of God. Move forward and, and, and go on with your life. And so these three commands are given to him. Verse 9, And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And the, that day was the Sabbath. What a bummer, huh? This could have been done on any other day. He had six other days that he could have healed him. But it just so happened to be on the Sabbath. What a bummer, huh? Poor guy. Of all the days he could have been healed. Because now who's going to be upset? The religious leaders. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. You know, the Sabbath is an interesting thing in the scriptures. Um, so misunderstood by all the writings that the Jewish rabbis would come to be able to expound on it. True story, there was a 1994 in Israel, there was a, in, in a Jewish apartment com community, there was a fire on Saturday on the Sabbath, and uh, they went to the rabbi and said, can we call the police? Because you're not supposed to call the police because it makes a spark to be able to make the line go to the other, and that's work, and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so by the time he kind of came up with the answer, 30 minutes later, two other apartment complexes had caught on fire and destroyed these two, three apartment complexes because the rabbi couldn't figure out if, if it was okay to be able to pick up the phone and make a phone call and call the fire department in a fire. And so we still see it today. That was 1994. Um, oh, 1994? Yes. Sabbath, just a trip. These Religion is um, just an interesting thing. So... Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus commanded him to take up his bed. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude uh, being in that place. And so Jesus didn't make any fanfare. But I find this interesting. The anger of the Jewish leaders was a violation of tradition. For us, it's often expectations we place on God. When God doesn't work the way we are claiming, believing, praying, or demanding, usually our expectation is, is, is diminished, and all of a sudden we accuse God or become the accuser of God. Well, well I, I prayed, well, I fasted, well, I did this, I did that, the other. I obeyed, I did what you told me, and this didn't happen. You didn't come through for me on this. And we have to be very careful. Our anger is maybe not at, you know, the Sabbath or a violation of what we believe our traditions are, but we definitely, I've, I've heard many a people be mad at God. Yeah, you're wrong. Change your opinion. Get a different perspective. Because God's perfect. And you're wasting your time. You're wasting precious energy. I was thinking about, like, that one section of Scripture in Luke's Gospel where it says, you know, if a king asks you, after you've worked in the field the entire time, the entire day, and you come in and he asks you for a meal, do you first make yourself a meal and then sit down and eat it? 
or after working in the field the entire day, do you obey your master? Of course you're going to obey your master. And then Jesus is telling the parable and he says, so it is amongst you. When you've done what you've been commanded to do, you've got to realize that you are an unprofitable servant and you simply did what your master commanded you. Because I think sometimes we, we look for the props and the pat on the back and the accolades and the attention and the, we're just doing what the master says. So is Jesus your master? Are you his bondservant? What is a bondservant? An individual that has freely chosen to put themselves under the master's care because the master has been so good to them that all they want to do is please their master. You got to come to grips with that. If you're going to call the shot of your life, then you're your master. If you're going to dictate what's going to take place in your life, then you're the master. And you're not a bondservant. But if you're a bondservant, then obey your master. And you'll be finally rewarded, ultimately in heaven, right? So I think we need to have a certain perspective. We do get upset with expectations that we place upon God. Verse 13, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Um, so here's where, you know, Jesus is saying, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That idea of when the Lord heals you from a demonic thing, and the enemy comes back and finds the house clean, but nothing there to take its place. It comes back with seven more powerful demons, right? And so that concept of the second state is worse than the first. So when Jesus works in our lives, then um, we don't want to continue to sin in those things that he delivered us from, right? He set us free from those things. And so we got to be careful to respond uh, appropriately. Sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. Um, so the man departs and tells the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. So now Jesus is going to defend this act as the religious leaders are extremely upset. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Is that not religion? Blind to what just happened? A man was in a condition for 38 years. I see this all the time in religion. Like, like majoring in the minors, you know, swallowing a gnat. What is it? Swallowing a camel and choking on a gnat. Is that what Jesus said in Matthew 23? Straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Just majoring in the minors. You know, we've had it where I've heard people say, you know, people are smoking in front of the church. People who were on meth not too long ago are smoking in front of church. Isn't smoking small? in comparison to being delivered from meth? So what? So what? They're smoking in front of church. They were strung out on meth not too long ago. They were, they were drug addicts. God delivered them from that. They're easing off, and God's probably going to deliver them from smoking one day, but isn't that small in comparison? Can we not celebrate? 
with somebody who's been delivered from something so great? I see it all the time. A judgmental, pharisaical attitude, a holier-than-thou. We don't chew, we don't, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't go with those who do. And we think we're better because of that. And so, you don't see Jesus have that perspective. You don't see Jesus have that attitude. And you see the sinners and the common folk having a desire to want to be with Jesus. And I think we become very judgmental in the church. So they want to kill Jesus because he did a good thing on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered verse 17 and said to them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. So we're going to see eight things. I'm going to roll through these. We're going to see eight things, eight statements Jesus makes about his relationship with his father. And I dare say, if we had this perspective, we would struggle much less. Wouldn't that be neat, just on a daily? I want to struggle less. I don't want to, like, go through turmoil and mental gymnastics trying to figure people out and figure myself out. Wouldn't that be a neat, just serene way to live life? And so number one, we see it here, reflection of the Father. Jesus isn't doing anything that his Father isn't doing. My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. He's reflecting the Father. Verse 18, number one, that was number one. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. We don't understand the English language, but they certainly understood what Jesus was saying in the Greek as he spoke it. But what he is saying is more than just, my father has been working until now and I have been working. He is making himself equal with God. And the word in the Greek is he is continuing to make himself equal with God. He doesn't stop making himself equal with God. Jesus is God. And he's making himself equal with the father. And so in that, we go on in 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, this is number two. Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So number one, reflection of the father. Number two, contact with the father. We have this tendency to think that Jesus lived this perfect life because Jesus is God. Jesus unveiled himself of his deity. He, he you know, Philippians chapter two, there's this, there's this thing in the Greek called the kenosis, the emptying. The way Jesus lived his life is the way that we're supposed to leave, live our lives in contact with the father. He knew what to do because the father was leading him. And that's how we're supposed to live our lives. By allowing God to lead us. So number two, contact with the Father. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Number three, security in the Father. Where do you find your security? That's a gigantic question that you have to answer because that will eliminate the overwhelming majority of your grief. Is your security found in the fact that you are loved by the Father? Or do you have to have the accolades of men, the praise of people, the acknowledgement of people, that what you do is noticed, what you do is acknowledged, what you do is seen, and somebody says something about it, 
Or are you just okay that you are loved by the Father? Because everything else is a false idol set up in our lives. And what do idols do in our lives? Don't they always let us down? They're, they're, they always let us down. But these are idols that we've resurrected. These are things that we're elevating. I've been doing all this stuff. Nobody notices. Nobody says anything. And I haven't won any awards. And I didn't get a raise. And on and on it goes. Are you okay that the Father loves you? First of all, do you know that the Father loves you? The Bible says that He demonstrated His love and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He loved you at your worst. If that's not enough, you're going to be looking for people to fulfill what they have an inability to fulfill. Sometimes they'll hit it. Sometimes you'll get it. But if that's what you're living for and if that's the thing that elevate, you know, that you elevate, your security is found in the Father and the fact that He loves you. And that's where Jesus' security was. He was secure in the fact. So He could do what the Father was leading Him to do without any thought to consequences or results. He was led of the Father. He was, going to, he was secure in the Father. And He was a reflection of the Father. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as, the Father, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Number four, harmony with the Father. So the Jews taught that God alone is the keeper of three keys. Number one, He is the, the key to heaven, the keys to the heaven, which He uses when Rain falls, Deuteronomy 28, verse 12. Number two, key to the womb, which he uses when a couple conceives, Genesis chapter 30, verse 2. And the third key is to the grave, which he used when the dry bones came to life. Jesus is saying that he has the key to raise dead. He has the key to life. The Jews taught that God, had, God and God alone had these three keys. Key to the womb, came to the he key to the heavens where it rains, and the key to life, to make dead come to life. And Jesus here is claiming that. Verse 27. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Number five, submission to the Father. So Jesus was submitted to obey whatever it was the Father had told him to do as he's in communion with him. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. 
There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that, his, that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me, the Father has sent, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent you, him you do not believe. I find this incredible. He, say, he points to John and he says, you know, I have the witness of man, but I'm not going to receive that. I'm, I'm not even going to put that on you. You have the, the witness of my miracles, but I'm not even going to point to that. I'm going to let my father testify of me. And that's the witness that you need to believe. If you were tapped into that, if you knew my God, my father, then you would receive me. But they don't know. And think about it. These are the religious leaders. And they don't know God. And they're not tapped into the source. So number six, validation from the father. Because validation didn't come from men. I, I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking like, Jesus' works point to the fact that he is who he said he was, right? He says that throughout the scriptures. Um, here he's letting them know, you don't even need to look to my works. I'm not even going to point to that. I'm going to point to validation from my father. But Jesus does say that his works testify of who he is, right? And then I was thinking, man, you have the Antichrist who is coming with lying signs and wonders. And that's, people are going to be deceived from that, right? So I was thinking to myself, like as I'm studying, I'm thinking, well, that's kind of not fair, right? If the Antichrist is going to come doing lying signs and wonders and people are going to be thinking that he's from God, Jesus said that his works point to God and they validate why he is sent from, from the Father. I was thinking, no, that doesn't make sense. And then as I kept reading, I understood the difference between the two will be who do those works point to? With the Antichrist, he's going to have people looking at him. With Jesus, they always pointed to the Father. And I think that's a pretty, pretty insightful point. Jesus' works always pointed to the Father. He always glorified his Father. Like he tells us in Matthew, let your light so shine among men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so may we be careful who we're pointing to and who we're drawing people to. May we be careful to make sure that we're pointing people to the Father. So his validation was from the Father. That's number six. Um, where are we at? 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. That's a reference to the Antichrist. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Number seven, concern about the Father. 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. Think about it. The law is going to condemn them because they're looking to Moses and the law as the means to be able to get to heaven. 
The purpose of the law was to show them that they couldn't keep it. And that's what they're going to point to. And so they're going to find themselves in condemnation, right? Verse 46, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me, but you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? Number eight, silence before the Father. He didn't have to accuse them. The law would do it for him. He didn't have to testify against them. Their lives would do it by saying, we're looking to the law, we're looking to Moses, and we're going to keep it perfect. Were they keeping it perfect? No, because everyone falls short of that perfect standard, right? They were, they were keeping it as good as anybody could keep it, but the purpose of the law was to show them that they couldn't keep it. So just interesting in that whole thing, if you were to kind of rehearse it, number one, reflection of the Father. Number two, contact with the Father. Number three, security in the Father. Four, harmony with the Father. Five, submission to the Father. Six, validation from the Father. Seven, concern about the Father. And eight, silence before the Father. And so Jesus was able to do what he did because he was tapped into his Father and he did that which his Father was having him to do. The same way we can do it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be tapped into the source, to God Almighty, and we can walk in obedience to what he's calling us to. We can do what God is calling us to do.